Father, thank you so much for bringing us here this morning, Lord, and I just pray now as we come here before you that we're able to focus in on you, Lord Jesus, and what you might be trying to teach us. Uh, give Mark the words to say, Lord, to challenge us, Father God, and convict us, and I pray that uh, we'd be excited as we leave here, Lord, uh, excited for the words that we, le- uh, we learn from your word, and uh, excited to go and serve you, Lord, on a daily basis, not just once a week. So, Father, as we come here before you, I just pray that you you focus us on you, Lord Jesus, and we'd be so excited to learn about you and worship you and um, just be with you, Father God. So thank you so much. And again, be with Mark here as he talks to us in your name. Amen. Well, good morning and uh, welcome to Cornerstone. If it's your first time with us, a uh, special welcome to you. And uh, if you're here occasionally, we're just happy to see your faces here. And uh, congratulations to the newlyweds here. And uh, good to see you as well. We're in our series on the spiritual disciplines, and this week we come to the discipline of giving. So uh, I can't say everything there is to give about this subject, because obviously the Bible has a whole lot to say about money. It might surprise you to hear that there are over 2,000 verses that talk about money in the Bible. Um, So what I want to do this morning is take some time to think about the motivations for giving from biblical principles found in 2 Corinthians chapter 8. You can go to a lot of sources to find practical help with budgets, uh, getting out of debt, but, and there are a lot of good practical resources for that. We can recommend those to you. But this morning, I think the best use of our time, what I feel God calling me to speak on is to talk about the motivations of giving. Because motivated people are more inclined to discipline themselves to give faithfully. Uh, I would like to begin by quoting words from Jesus from his famous Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 6, and and then we'll turn to 2 Corinthians 8 to sort of pull back those 2,000-year-old curtains a little bit and look at culture a long time ago, something that happened a long time ago that will hopefully be inspiring and motivating to us in our giving. Matthew chapter 6, verses 19 through 21. Jesus said, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Now, earth is not our home. Heaven is our home. We don't store up treasures on earth, not because they are bad, but because they don't last. Proverbs 23.5 says, Will you set your eyes on that which is not? For riches certainly make themselves wings, They fly away like an eagle toward heaven. You can't take it with you, right? But you can use it now for the kingdom of God. Randy Alcorn, in in the book The Treasure Principle, he he says you can pay it forward in a sense. And and he gives an interesting illustration, uh, just kind of puts our money, our resources, our material possessions into perspective a little bit. He says that sooner or later, everything we own ends up in a landfill. Cars boats and hot tubs, clothes, stereos, and barbecues, Christmas and birthday presents, the treasures that children fight about, friendships were lost, honesty was sacrificed for, and many marriages broke up for, all of these end up in a junkyard. It's a matter of perspective, isn't it? Well, I want to talk to you about how giving is strongly related to our spiritual health. You look at some of the worst swindlers in the New Testament, you think of guys like Levi and Zacchaeus, they were rotten, weren't they? They swindled people out of tax money unfairly. But then you look at how they handled their money when they encountered Jesus as their Lord. 
and how radically different that was. It was amazing. And, and you look at the way the first church sold their possessions and shared with everyone who had need, and there was none that lacked. You think about the way the Ephesians, remember those Ephesian occultists in Acts chapter 19, how they burned all their magic books worth millions of dollars in today's money? That was radical. They showed where their hearts were. But then on the other hand, you think of someone like that rich young man in Matthew chapter 19, uh, kind of perfect looking on the outside, right? And Jesus only asked him one thing, to sell his possessions and give to the poor to have treasures in heaven. He, he did everything right. He kept every command. But Jesus knew that there was one thing he lacked. Jesus knew that money and possessions were his God. And if you're familiar with the story, you know that tragically he walked away from the real treasures to hold on to his own treasures. And you think of one of the wisest men ever, King Solomon in the Old Testament. He's one of the wisest men ever. He's one of the wealthiest men ever, the wealthiest man of his time. And listen to what he says in Ecclesiastes 2.10. He says, I denied myself nothing my eyes desired. I refused my heart no pleasure. But then in the very next verse he says, When I surveyed all that my hands had done, and what I had toiled to achieve, everything was meaningless, a chasing after the wind. Nothing was gained under the, under the sun. The wisest man ever, who had all the wealth and riches of the world you could want, he, did, he denied his heart no pleasure. In the end, he could say, it was nothing. It was chasing after the wind. He, you can read in Ecclesiastes 2, he planted these incredible orchards. And uh, he says, it was all meaningless, because it's, I won't be here, and someone else is just going to take over it when I leave. So I want to talk about giving as a spiritual discipline, but more than that, I want to talk about the heart motivations because it's all about the heart. There is nothing wrong with having money. Uh, corrupt people can put it to evil uses. Good people put it to righteous uses. But it's the love of money that's evil. There is nothing wrong with setting specific goals and schedules and plans to handle your money. Those are good things to do. But there is something wrong when our heart, when the motivations in our heart aren't right aren't godly in the way we handle our money. What's most important is to honor God with our money. Well, I'll say something up front before I dive into this chapter in 2 Corinthians 8 that uh, may shock someone this morning. I don't know, but I just want to say that if you give money in the weekly offering here because you feel it's a good thing to do uh, or something that good Christians do and you feel it would feel bad if you didn't, or maybe a preacher made you feel guilty one time about not giving enough, and so you give. Uh, or maybe you'd rather spend it on something, but you just kind of give in the offering anyways. I just want to say up front, and, and hopefully I speak for the leadership on this, that keep your money. Uh, spend it on yourselves. Spend it on your own pleasures, because that is not the heart that God wants to have giving. God doesn't need it. God doesn't want it, if that's your heart motivation. But hopefully this morning, this sermon will help change any cold hearts here. will help encourage the faithful to give more with generosity and the right spirit. And um, we do want you to give, but only with the right heart. In 2 Corinthians 8, we have a very wonderful window which we can look through. And um, we see a group of God's people a long time ago, and they're a tremendous example to follow. And what Paul is doing, he's writing to the Corinthian church. This is a church that promised to give in a special offering a year ago, and now a year later, Paul's writing them, encouraging them to follow through on what they said they would do. They're taking a collection up for the poor in Jerusalem. And 
what he's going to do is give us this example of other Christians in the region of Corinth, the Macedonians, uh, who are just a tremendous group of people. Let's read about them. 2 Corinthians 8. I'm going to read from the New Living Translation this morning. Now I want you to know, dear brothers and sisters, what God in his kindness has done through the churches in Macedonia. They are being tested by many troubles, and they are very poor, but they are also filled with abundant joy, which has overflowed in rich generosity. For I can testify that they gave not only what they could afford, but far more, and they did it of their own free will. They begged us again and again for the privilege of sharing in the gift for the believers in Jerusalem. They even did more than we hoped, for their first action was to give themselves to the Lord and to us, just as God wanted them to do. So we have urged Titus, who encouraged your giving in the first place, to return to you and encourage you to finish this ministry of giving. Since you excel in so many ways in your faith, your gifted speakers, your knowledge, your enthusiasm, and your love from us, I want you to excel also in this gracious act of giving. I am not commanding you to do this, but I am testing how genuine your love is by comparing it with the eagerness of the other churches. might sound a little different from the traditional version, but, you know, I think it speaks very readably to us. New King James is still kind of my preferred study and speaking version, but uh, the New Living is growing on me. So from, the, from its birthday, the church's birthday, on the day of Pentecost, the Jerusalem church had to cope with extreme poverty of many of its members. When you think of the day of Pentecost, thousands of Jews came to Jerusalem from all over the world to celebrate this day of Pentecost. 3,000 people were added to the church that day in Acts chapter 2. And shortly afterward, the number of men reached 5,000. And that's not even counting the women. So there, and there were no other churches. There were no other Christians anywhere else in the world. They were all at first right there in Jerusalem. And so many of them stayed there because they could sit under the apostles' teaching, they could have fellowship with other believers, and, and they might not have something to go back to because their Jewish families would have kicked them out. So a number of them would have been staying with their Jewish relatives at the time, but they're now alienated from their Jewish relatives, and so a lot of them would have moved in with the Jewish believers in Jerusalem. And you can imagine what a hardship that would have been. But then a lot of the local converts would also have lost their jobs or business because of their new faith. And there was also a poor economy at that time because the Romans, there was the Roman Empire, and they were taking all the resources. Uh, they didn't leave much behind. They took as much as they could from their territories. So the, so the believers there didn't even have very much. But as you read in Acts chapters 2 and 4, these local believers sold everything they had and shared with everyone who had need and there was no one who didn't have need. That's, that's just a tremendous thing. But by the, by the time 2 Corinthians here is written, um, Christianity had spread out into the world, and that money in Jerusalem from all the selling and sharing was gone. And the people were very poor there in Jerusalem. And so what Paul determined to do was to travel around on his missionary, one of his missionary journeys, the third, and take a collection for those needy believers in Jerusalem. And he mentions this at the end of 1 Corinthians chapter 16, that he was going to take up this collection. And then now in 2 Corinthians 8, it's a year later, and Paul's writing them to complete what they said they would do a year before, to finish the collection they started so that it would be ready when he came through. And he's encouraging them by giving us an example of other churches in, in Greece, Philippi, Thessalonica, and Berea, 
which we, we call altogether the Macedonian churches. And so he says in verse uh, 1, Now I want you to know, dear brothers and sisters, what God in his kindness has done through the churches in Macedonia. They are being tested by many troubles. They are very poor, but they are also filled with abundant joy, which has overflowed in rich generosity. For I can testify that they gave not only what they could afford, but far more. Uh, first of all, the first principle I want to share with you is that they gave sacrificially. You know, you don't see in the, Paul's letters to the Philippians or in, to the Thessalonians, these are the Macedonian churches, to, to give more. He didn't have to urge them to do that. You know, in James chapter 2, he urged believers, suppose you see your brother or sister who has no food or clothing, and you say, goodbye and have a good day, stay warm and eat well, but then you don't give that person any food or clothing, what good does that do? He didn't have to say something like that to the Philippians and Thessalonians. In 1 John, John wrote, if someone has enough money to live well and sees a brother or sister in need but shows no compassion, how can God's love be in that person? He didn't have to say something like that to the Philippians, the Thessalonians, or Bereans. You look at their example, and, and you notice four statements about the condition they were in themselves. I don't think Paul was expecting too much out of these churches when he was going around. He was expecting more maybe out of the Corinthians. Uh, but he was pretty surprised, I think. And you look in verse 2, there's these four statements about these Macedonian churches. It says, they are being tested by many troubles. They are very poor. They are also filled with abundant joy and overflowed in rich generosity. You know, it's amazing that all four of those statements are in the same verse about the same group of people, isn't it? Do those belong together? Well, in Macedonia, they did. That's amazing that they could all be said about the same group of people. They were going through many trials. Uh, let's think about the Thessalonians, for example. In Acts chapter 17, verses 5 through 9, we read about a mob in the city of Thessalonica who attacked the house of Jason and dragged him and other believers out and before the city authorities and shouted out, These are all guilty of treason against Caesar, for they profess allegiance to another king named Jesus. And the, and the whole city was in an uproar over these people, over these believers. They were under intense persecution, and when you look in 1 Thessalonians, you see that. Paul's talking about their persecutions. And in 2 Thessalonians 1, verse 4, he commends them, saying, We proudly tell God's other churches about your endurance and faithfulness in all the persecutions and hardships you were suffering. This was a group of people under hardship, under persecution. And then let's look at Philippi. You know, in the letter to the Philippians, you read about how these people were so incredibly generous um, you can read in the second and fourth chapters how they really put the needs of others and the Apostle Paul above their own needs. They just gave time and time again generously to the Apostle Paul. They put their other people's needs ahead of their own. And it doesn't mean they gave large sums because they didn't have a lot to give, but they gave sacrificially. And that's the principle here. God counts our gifts not by how much we give, but by how much we have left. If a man is a millionaire and gives $3,000, doesn't count as much as a man on a salary of 30000 say, and, and gives $3,000. There's a little bit of a difference there. The Macedonians gave until they really felt it. Have you ever given until you really felt it? I, I don't know I could say I have. Do we ever give to the point where we really felt it? That's what these believers did. And the second principle is that they gave joyfully. They didn't only give sacrificially, but they gave joyfully. Verse 2 says, but they are also filled with abundant joy, which has overflowed in rich generosity. 
They're going through a great trial, and they're so poor, but they gave with joy. It wasn't done grudgingly. They were glad to do what they could. And in the, in the next chapter, in 2 Corinthians chapter 9, you look in verses 5 through 7 with me, Paul tells them to prepare your generous gift beforehand, but you had previously promised that it may be as a matter of generosity and not as a grudging obligation. But this I say, he who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and he who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. So let each one give as he purposes in his heart, not grudgingly or of necessity, for God loves a cheerful giver. What does it mean to give grudgingly? Um, give you a little window into my home. Sometimes, you know, my oldest son has had a toy he's had that was very special to him maybe a couple years ago or three years ago. And it's just been sitting around for a long time. Maybe we should go through that stuff and get rid of it more. But, uh, you know, then the middle son comes along and sees that toy that hasn't been played with for a long time, and he picks it up and starts playing with it. Well, you know what older brother does, at least at this age? Mine, mine, you know, it's, this is my toy. Well, you haven't played with it in such a long time, can't you just share it? Uh, and, and his reaction is, oh, sure, okay, go ahead, play with the toy. <laughs> you know, and if, if you make him give it, it's done grudgingly. That's the word grudgingly. If you make your son give the toy, it's grudgingly. Do we ever give grudgingly to God? Is that ever our heart? Do we give grudgingly to God? It's mine. I guess I'll give it. Well, now the word cheerful here in this verse. The word cheerful comes from the Greek word that translates as hilarious. God loves a cheerful giver. God loves a hilarious giver. That's the actual word that translates. Do we ever give hilariously? You know, the hilarious giver holds nothing back from the Lord. Everything is the Lord's. The Macedonians were hilarious givers. They prepared their gift out of their poverty. They sowed bountifully. They gave cheerfully. And you notice how it says that God loves a cheerful giver? And you might think that God loves all believers, and that's right. That's, that's a good thing to understand because Ephesians 3, verses 18 and 19 says, And may you have the power to understand, as all God's people should, how wide, how long, how high, and how deep his love is. May you experience the love of Christ, though it is too great to understand fully. But in here, in 2 Corinthians 9, 7, Paul says, God loves a cheerful giver. I believe that means that God has a special love for those who give generously and bountifully with a cheerful heart. Let me be clear that we don't do things to earn God's favor for salvation, but here's a direct statement that says that God loves a cheerful giver. If you give generously and your heart is right, God has a special love for you. That's a wonderful thing, isn't it? Third principle they gave voluntarily. Verse 3, they did it of their own free will. You know, giving is a privilege, not an obligation. The Macedonians were freely willing to give. They didn't have to be pressured. Instead, they asked, they even begged, Paul says, to participate in this offering. That's the kind of giving God wants today. We don't command anyone to give, say, 10%. Uh, you think of 10%, the Old Testament tithes. That was something you had to give. It was part of the law. It's kind of like our government taxes today. You know, we pay them because we must, and, and God expects it. But they also had free will offerings in the Old Testament, which was to the Lord. And that's the principle here, to give voluntarily a free will offering to the Lord. 
and it should be according to what you have, says verses 11 and 12. You know, 10% for someone may be a real stretch, but 10% for someone else may be nothing. The inventor of land movers. I remember when I was 15 years old, we went on a family trip down to Texas, and we toured the campus at Letourneau University, and this man, Letourneau, was incredibly generous. He invented land movers, became incredibly wealthy, and you know what? He gave over 90% of his income to the Lord. You know, 10% for Letourneau would have been nothing. He gave generously to the Lord. So question, uh, how much are we supposed to give? The answer, my answer, from the Bible, we are to give sacrificially, we are to give cheerfully, we are to give voluntarily. You know, maybe that's 5%, maybe 10%, maybe 20%, maybe 90%, like Laterno, or maybe even the widow's might. You know what the widow's might is? One of Jesus' stories, the widow who put everything in. Maybe that's what he wants. Now, I don't really have an amount or a percentage to tell you to give, but if it's sacrificial, if it's done cheerfully and voluntarily, it'll be the right amount. That's what God wants from us. The fourth principle from them, we see that they gave persistently. Verse 4, they begged us again and again for the privilege of sharing in the gift for the believers in Jerusalem. You know, these believers wouldn't take no for an answer. They were poor. Paul knew they were poor. Wasn't expecting much. But they were begging to give in this offering. You know, with the Philippians, you look at the end of chapter 4 in Philippians, their giving to Paul persisted throughout Paul's career, throughout his life. You know, have you ever heard of a church just begging again and again to participate in an offering for the poor, for believers they had never met, and they were poor themselves? I, haven't, I don't know if I've heard of that. That's quite something, isn't it? I've heard of the Macedonians. Well, we need to have a regular plan to give. That's part of the discipline of giving, having a plan. And to carry it out. You know, a lot of Christians have good intentions to give, but then maybe they don't carry out those intentions. To the Corinthians now, Paul is urging them in verse 11 to complete what they started out to do. He says, now you should finish what you started. Let the eagerness you showed in the beginning be matched now by your giving. Give in proportion to what you have. So finish what you started. If you have good intentions to give, finish what you started. Carry out those good intentions and give to the Lord. And the fifth principle, my last principle this morning, verse 5, they gave themselves. Uh, look here in verse 5, it says, they even did more than we had hoped, for their first action was to give themselves to the Lord and to us just as God wanted them to do. It, this really explains how they were able to give as they did. Their first priority was to give themselves to the Lord. When a person does this, they don't worry about the cost of giving. The financial giving follows giving yourself to the Lord. It reminds me of Romans 12, verses 1 through 2, verses that are really good to be familiar with and even memorize. It says, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, to give your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your reasonable act of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Hear this, offering yourselves as a living sacrifice. Offer yourselves to the Lord first. When your life is offered to God, which means your time, your energy, your abilities, when you are giving yourself to Christ completely, then financial giving just becomes a natural outflowing act of worship, doesn't it? When you are wholly given to the Lord, 
and everything is the Lord's, then it's just a natural thing to do. And that's how these Macedonians were. Now Paul's going to encourage the Corinthians to excel in giving. Look in verses 6 and 7. So we have urged Titus, who encouraged your giving in the first place, to return to you and encourage you to finish this ministry of giving. Since you excel in so many ways, in your faith, your gifted speakers, your knowledge, your enthusiasm, and your love from us, I want you to excel also in this gracious act of giving. You know, the Corinthian church had some issues. You can read both of their letters, read about those issues. But they also had a lot going for them. They had every spiritual gift, 1 Corinthians chapter 1 says. And, and here we read that they had faith, they had gifted speakers who would have kept good doctrine and truth before the congregation. They had knowledge to apply the doctrine to the issues of life. They were enthusiastic. You know, these people would have had lots of energy and passion. They had love, but they weren't complete. Paul says, I also want you to excel in the gracious act of giving. And, you know, I think of Cornerstone here and all the spiritual gifts we have. We have uh, five men who are working full-time and yet are able to you know, speak here on Sunday mornings. We have uh, people who were just a loving church. We have a lot of energy growing for reaching our community, reaching the lost. We have a lot going for us. But we have to also ask the question as we come through a verse like this and ask ourselves, do we excel in giving? Do we excel in giving? I just will leave that with each of us. We each examine our own hearts and say, do I excel in giving? You know, Paul's not commanding them to do this because it's a voluntary free will thing. Verse 8, he says, I'm not commanding you to do this, but I am testing how genuine your love is by comparing it with the eagerness of the other churches. The offering is always, and as was always meant to be, a voluntary free will offering. And so Paul's not requiring it here, but he's challenging them to prove the sincerity of their love and follow the example of the generous Macedonians. And so now here we are 2,000 years later, and we look back through these old curtains into this scene a long time ago of these believers who were so generous, and we ask ourselves, are we generous? Are we excelling in giving? like these Macedonians. Now, I want to just spend a few minutes thinking about the ultimate example. And as I, I think as the Apostle Paul was looking at the example of the Macedonians and encouraging the Corinthians with their example, he couldn't help but be drawn to the ultimate example of giving. And we have that here in verse 9, and, and it's a terrific lead-in into our communion in a few minutes. Let's look at verse 9 together. Paul writes, You know the generous grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, Though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, so that by his poverty he might make you rich. That's just a, a wonderful verse. It's very deep. You could, you could really spend a whole sermon on that. But just a few thoughts to leave with you to kind of wet your tongues this morning. That Jesus Christ was rich. Certainly not rich in Bethlehem or on his earthly ministry and his life down here. He was rich in heaven. This refers to eternity past before he came to earth. Jesus Christ is eternal. He had no beginning. He created everything. He was rich beyond any riches anyone has ever seen. He owns the universe and everything in it, right? So he's rich. But it says he became poor. Not just talking about financial poverty here. It's talking about the reality that, as Philippians 2 says, although he existed in the form of God, he did not regard equality with God a thing to be held on to, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. The God of the universe 
became poor when he came to earth as a man. He laid aside his, the free use of his God power. And uh, he didn't only become poor in the incarnation, though. You look at the rest of his life, growing up as the son of an insignificant carpenter in Nazareth, of all places. You look at how he became poor when he was going through those trials in the Garden of Gethsemane. The God of the universe, the creator of all things, the one with authority and power, weeping in the garden for us, for what he was about to do. And then, ultimately, he certainly became poor when he humbled himself on the cross. Philippians 2.9 says, He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Just think about that. He made us rich. And in so doing, he made us rich. He defeated the powers of hell. He completed the work of redemption. And he gave us, his people, the riches of salvation. That's what it was about for him. We have blessings of salvation because of Christ's poverty. That through his poverty, you might become rich. You think about what Christ has given you. He's given you forgiveness. He's given you a heart of joy, peace, eternal life, light, glory. He's promised us glory to reign with Christ one day. Doesn't that evoke gratitude in your heart this morning? It does in mine as I think about that. And it's the ultimate motivation, isn't it? To give sacrificially, to give cheerfully, voluntarily, persistently, selflessly. All these principles we've been talking about. Christ is our ultimate motivation behind all of it. Because he gave his all. He was rich, but he became poor so that you, through his poverty, might become rich. It's a key truth of Christianity. That Christ, he gave himself sacrificially. He voluntarily came. He even joyfully came for the joy set before him, it says. He endured the cross. And so, you know, how wonderful that is and how it motivates us to give sacrificially, to give cheerfully, to give persistently, to give of ourselves. Let's give ourselves to the Lord first, and then this discipline of giving will come. Let's give thanks for the bread and cup now before we take communion here. Our Heavenly Father, we are so thankful for this rich sacrifice of Christ. You sent your son. He was so rich beyond comparison in, in, in eternity with the glories of heaven, the worship and praise of angels, the sovereign ruler of all, and yet he came and humbled himself and became a man and became obedient even to death, the death on a cross. And we're just so humbled and thankful for that. We thank you for the blessings of salvation. And Lord, we want to, in response, give ourselves to you. All of our energies, our talents, our abilities, our resources, all of it belongs to you, Lord. And if there's anything we are holding back this morning from you, help us now to warm our hearts, turn those cold hearts uh, into thankful hearts, into warm hearts, passionate hearts that would not hold anything back from you. Lord, we thank you for the Macedonians and their great example. And uh, Lord, in this group here at Cornerstone Community Church, I just pray for a spirit of generosity, a, sp a spirit of sacrificial giving, a, a spirit of joyful giving, of cheerful giving, of voluntary giving. And, and Lord, we just uh, need only to remind ourselves of the great sacrifice of Christ to motivate us to do that. We now take the bread and the cup and we give you thanks for these symbols that remind us of the body and blood of Christ, 
that was given for us. And Lord, as the believers come forward uh, during this next song to take the bread and cup, we just uh, let it be with a spirit of thankfulness. Let it be, let words be filling their minds that say, thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord, for all you've done for us. And, uh, we just praise you and worship you now in Jesus' name.